When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Empress Matilda, part one. Ortumania Miromeja sed maxima ikiaset in ricci filia sponsa parents. So goes the epitaph on Empress Matilda's tomb in Rouen. Great by birth, greater by marriage, greatest in her offspring. Here lies the daughter, wife, and mother of Henry. Modern thoughts would shy away from making a woman all about the men in her life, but Matilda's story is sadly in many ways, wrapped up in the men of her life. Her achievements were judged less during her time for being a woman, and often in our time for not trying harder. If she was any more forceful in her time, she would have likely achieved nothing. She is in a historical no-man's land. One entertaining note on her epitaph, the father of her son, Henry, mentioned in her epitaph, was not named Henry. He was named Geoffrey, The decision to leave him off her final statement may have been intentional, and something I'll bring up again later. The husband mentioned was her first, Emperor Henry V, who would provide her with the title Empress. But sadly, no children. The inclusion of her father is expected, but sad in many ways. He was the man who wanted so much from her, but helped so little when it really counted. Matilda's story is her own, but it would not be told if it were not for the men in her life. The final man mentioned, her son, Henry Fitzempress, the future Henry II, King of England, deserves his place with his mother. He was a filial son who would learn the lessons she shared with him and understood that she had much more than just her bloodline to give. She was not afraid to place him at risk for the chance for him to show his greatness. Matilda was born on the 2nd of February, 1102, the first child of Henry I, King of England, and Edith Matilda of Scotland. Her parents had married in 1100. Her mother was the daughter of the late King of Scots, Malcolm III, and St. Margaret of Wessex, the sister of Edgar the Ethling. At the time of her parents' marriage and her birth, her uncle was the King of Scotland. As we explored in our last episode, her father's claim to the crown of England was being challenged by his older brother, Robert. When Edith Matilda of Scotland was four months pregnant with the future empress, Robert Curthose attempted to seize the throne. His ambitious attempt was stopped at Winchester, where Edith Matilda was spending her pregnancy. His always chivalrous nature prevented him from attacking the city that his beloved goddaughter was resting in. Later chroniclers would make it sound as though Edith Matilda was either in labor or in her lying in, 
the traditional period before birth when noble women would seclude themselves before having a child. Based on Matilda's birth in February the following year, this wasn't possible. This moment of kindness on Robert's part cost him his best chance at taking England, but likely kept his sister-in-law and future niece safe. This level of thoughtfulness was not something shared by Matilda's father. As we know from our earlier episode, Robert's story does not have a happy ending. Since the Norman conquest started in 1066, England had been ruled by the Normans, the French descendants of 9th and 10th century Vikings. Originally, they came to France to raid, but their leader Rollo entered into a treaty with the king of the West Franks. The Treaty of Saint-Clair-sur-Epte gave Rollo the territory of Normandy in exchange for his fealty. The Norsemen, eventually Normans, would protect Paris from other Viking raids. Normans slowly adopted the language of the local inhabitants and intermarried with the local population. Prior to the Norman conquest, England was controlled by the Anglo-Saxon kings from the House of Wessex. Save for two short periods of Danish Viking rule under Sven Folkbeard, his son, Canute the Great, and Canute's sons. Since the ascension of Edward the Elder in 899, all rulers in this line had been descended from Alfred the Great. The House of Wessex had one remaining legitimate male in its line. Edgar Etheling, St. Margaret of Wessex's younger brother. By marrying Matilda of Scotland, Henry I had brought the legitimate line of Wessex back into the royal line of England, albeit from a female line. Henry made a big deal about this. His marriage was grafting the line of Wessex back onto the tree of the Normans and making both stronger. Matilda being the first child from this line, as well as her father's first legitimate child. Remember, Henry had at least 20 illegitimate children had a bright future from birth, as mentioned clearly in her epitaph. In 1103, Edith Matilda gave birth to her second child, a boy named William. He was given the sobriquet Ethling, the designation for a male heir in the Anglo-Saxon line. He was most often referred to, though, as William Adeline, the Norman pronunciation of Ethling. I will refer to him as such because it feels odd calling a Norman by an Anglo-Saxon nickname. After having William, King Henry and Edith Matilda did not have any further children. There are many possible reasons for this. In all my research, I haven't found a definitive reason. Granted, why a couple chooses not to have children isn't really anyone else's business. The suggestions range from Henry wanting to avoid succession issues similar to those he had with his brothers. Yes, irony was a real thing even back in the 12th century to Henry being repulsed by Edith Matilda's cleaning the feet and sores of supplicants while going about her duties within the church. As with most highborn women, there were two avenues for Matilda, marriage to help form an alliance or the church. Wealthy women who chose not to marry usually entered religious institutions, and before marriage, many women were educated in these institutions. Edith Matilda, for example, spent many years at Romsey Abbey for her protection and education. Empress Matilda was not destined for an abbey, though. The choice was never going to be her own. She was too important to make her own choices, and as we'll see, she was wholly unsuited for a life of quiet contemplation and prayer. Henry chose to make a marriage alliance for his daughter, and while it appears to have been happy for her, it will sound very jarring for most in this day. In 1108, Matilda was arranged to marry Henry V, king of the Germans and eventually Holy Roman Emperor. Their actual engagement took place in 1110 in Utrecht. I am sure most of you have already started doing the maths. Yes, the bride was six at the time of the arrangement, 
eight at the time of her engagement, and she would be 12 when she married in 1114, the age of consent for marriage according to the church at the time. Compared to many similarly married peers, she was lucky. She moved to her future husband's country young, at eight years old, which would have allowed her time to adjust to their language and their customs. Her husband was also kind to her, though in need of a son, and therefore very keen for the marriage to go ahead as early as possible. Henry V was between the ages of 28 and 33 at their wedding. His date of birth varies between sources. There is no nice way to describe a marriage between a child and an adult at least 16 years older than her. While this was her duty, it is a horrible thing to put any child through. Thankfully, according to the chroniclers, their marriage was happy and supportive. Sidestepping from Matilda's story for a moment, it is important to go over the situation in Germany and the Holy Roman Empire at this time. The Holy Roman Empire was, at least according to the Roman Catholic Church, the successor state of the Roman Empire. I'm sure the Byzantines had an opinion on this. It began in the 9th century under Charlemagne, or Charles I. From the 10th century, the title of Holy Roman Emperor was an elected position, but the list of possible candidates was very small. This wasn't a constitutionally elected monarchy. It makes sense in many ways to follow this process. Having a child king only rarely goes well. Being able to select an adult who can lead troops into battle and manage finances is very helpful in a historical era that isn't known for its peace. While the Holy Roman Empire and the kings of Germany are sorting out how to choose emperors in a way that suited the leading nobles, the Roman Catholic Church was also involved. For a king of the Germans to be styled as the Holy Roman Emperor, he needed to be crowned by the Pope. We now dive into the investiture controversy, at least the first one. In 1075, Pope Gregory VII issued his Dictus Popeye. It was not published until later, but the clause that would cause the most trouble in the Holy Roman Empire was the one that asserted that the Pope alone held the power to depose an emperor. As you can imagine, this did not go well with the sitting emperor, Henry IV, father of the previously mentioned Henry V. The Lateran Council also decreed that only the Pope could appoint or approve the appointment of a bishop or deposed churchman. This also didn't go over well with Henry IV. He liked appointing his own bishops. I can only imagine that to him it sounded like the Pope wanted all the power, but none of the responsibility. Bishops in this time were active members of the governments in the areas they oversaw. They could help with political problems and assist their rulers in receiving papal assistance in church matters, like support when they were trying to conquer a neighboring territory. Henry IV decided that he was going to continue doing what he wanted to do, installing his own priests and bishops without papal approval. The Pope called his bluff and excommunicated him. This is a time where the church is literally your salvation and everyone is a member. Being a ruler who was excommunicated was not looked on favorably by king's subjects, let alone his nobles or princes. It was a great way to be deposed. In Henry IV's case, this meant that his princes began and continued rebelling against him. Realizing this was not going to end well if he did not fix things with Gregory, in 1077, he went in person to beg for the Pope's forgiveness. The Pope was rightly suspicious and ordered Henry to do penance, wearing a hair shirt and standing barefoot in the snow. After doing penance, Henry's excommunication was lifted, and he went on to be an upright and pious... No, 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 he didn't. His princes continued to revolt and decided to elect Rudolf von Reinfeldt as an anti-king. 
like an antipope, but a king. Gregory excommunicated Henry again. Since this was becoming a game of one-upmanship, Henry called a council of his bishops and declared Gregory illegitimate. Henry declared Gebert of Ravenna Pope. He was called Clement III. This all led to a small war and Henry taking control of northern Italy and, more importantly, Rome. He installed Clement at St. Peter's in 1084. Gregory was still in Rome at the Costa San Angelo. Clement crowned Henry on Easter of 1084. The situation of an antipope being installed in Rome and a pope being elected somewhere else would continue on long after all the men who started this were dead. In 1122, the Concordant of Worms settled most of the problems between the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire. It was a complicated story that I'll be covering in a few years' time, when I'm ready for a year of antipopes. <laughs> How this relates to the story of Matilda is simple. Her husband, Henry V, rebelled against his father, not exclusively due to the investiture controversy, but that doesn't mean he didn't take advantage of it. Henry V forced his father to advocate in 1105. He did eventually name his own antipope, Gregory VIII. Things for Henry V went about as well as they had for his father, until he was able to force the pope to crown him. Yes, literally force. He held the pope and his bishops hostage until he was crowned in 1111. He then left Rome to go back to Germany, at which point the pope at this time, Pascal II, quickly took back everything he had agreed to. The crisis was long and not a huge part of our story, but it does set the stage for what Matilda would be dealing with when she was crowned in just three short years. She would have known what was going on because she was living in Germany at this time. Hearing her husband's struggles, both with his own father, his princes and other nobles, and the papacy, would have shown her that a firm hand was needed to deal with any leadership matters she was faced with. Due to the large age difference between her and her husband, it wasn't an outrageous expectation that she may be asked to act as regent in the case of the early death of her husband. She also knew how her father had acceded to his throne, and it was not because he had been chosen to be king. As we'll see, Matilda was made with the same strong will of her father and grandfather. Women in this time, though, were not meant to be kings. They were meant to be the wife of kings. They were bargaining chips and alliances, the birthers of children, especially sons, who would carry on their father's line, and the keepers of the home. They were expected to be active in church life and to donate generously to monastic foundations. One of their most important roles was to intercede with their husbands. When a king made a ruling that might have been a bit too harsh, it was easy enough for his wife to beg for a more gentle punishment, owing to both her feminine kindness and weakness. Kings would happily use their wives to make their lives easier with their nobles. Queen mothers could also act as regent for their underage sons if needed, though they would always have military supporters to assist him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. At least this is how wives were expected to behave in England, Normandy, France, and the Iberian Peninsula. In Germany and Italy, wives were treated a bit differently. They were often active partners in ruling with their husband, acting as his regent when he could not due to distance or infirmity. Women were regularly countesses in their own right, the creatively named Matilda, Countess of Canossa, being one example. The empress was trained to be in control and to lead. She acted as her husband's regent in Italy while he was away in Germany. Sadly, there is not much recorded of her time, but what is shows strength in leadership. Matilda may have been acting as regent and in a position of power, but she could not be unaware that she had not managed to succeed at her main job as queen. She and Henry never had any children, despite nine years of marriage. It would, in fact, be 19 years after she married for the first time before she had her first child. Going this long without a child would have led to so many whispers. Women were usually blamed for a lack of children in a marriage, especially in an age where men often had illegitimate children before their wedding. Henry V had at least one acknowledged illegitimate child, so to most it would have appeared that Matilda was the problem. It's horrible to imagine being a literal child and being blamed for not being able to have a child. In 1118, Matilda would receive some of the worst news a child can ever receive. Her mother had died. While they had not seen each other in eight years, it's known that they wrote regularly, and losing a parent is rarely easy. Two years later, more devastating news would come. In November 1120, William Adeline died in the White Ship disaster. This shipwreck didn't just kill the heir apparent, it killed one of her half-sisters, a half-brother, and multiple younger members of her father's court. To lose so many young people in one night would have been unspeakable. This is a time when infant mortality was high, but once a child reached their teens, they could usually look forward to a long life. Yes, the heir had died, which would have hurt all, but many families lost their future. Matilda was not able to come home due to political machinations outside of her control. Henry I, Matilda's father, quickly remarried. The woman he chose was Adeliza of Louvain. She was 18, described as beautiful, and she was from a noble family. All the things a king would need to make a wife. 
Henry was 35 years older than her and had many illegitimate children, so it was expected that his young wife would quickly be pregnant. Adeliza was not quickly pregnant, and one can imagine that she knew of the whispers about her barrenness. For Matilda, there was more sadness to come. In 1125, her husband died, most likely from cancer. She was no longer in control, and since she and Henry had never had any children, she had no reason to stay in a country that wasn't her home. She was offered her dower lands, and the new Holy Roman Emperor was generous to her. She only took her personal effects, including her jewels, two crowns, and the hand of St. James the Apostle. Holy relics were a really big deal in those days. She could have remarried, but decided to return to her father. At this point, her father and Adeliza had been married for four years and had not produced any children. Matilda and Adeliza were very close in age, and it appears they spent a great deal of time together. Matilda was not remarried yet, so was at her father's court, and Adeliza stayed with Henry at all times in hopes of producing children. Two women of similar age, both having been married to much older men and both blamed for their lack of children. It's easy to think they would have had a great deal of understanding for each other. For Matilda, this friendly relationship with her stepmother would help her immeasurably in just a few years. By 1126, it was clear that Henry and Adeliza were unlikely to have children. While women are often blamed for lack of children in this time period, it's important to note that there are no records of Henry having any illegitimate children during his second marriage. As we'll see later, the problem was not likely Adeliza. Henry needed to sort out his succession plans. He may have wanted to live forever, but he knew that wasn't going to happen. The succession struggles between his older brothers and himself were something to be avoided. Unstable successions hurt the finances and security of any kingdom, and Henry did not want a repeat of the uncertainty that had happened after William of Normandy's death. Losing his son and not having another with his new wife could have been a crisis, but he had other options. The strongest of these were William Clito, Robert of Gloucester, and Theobald II, Count of Champagne. I discussed William Clito in his father's episode. He was a legitimate descendant of William of Normandy, healthy, young, and a proven military leader. He was a friend of Louis VI, King of the Franks. He had a lot of positive attributes, but one major negative one. One of Henry's greatest regrets was allowing the then four-year-old Clito to leave after capturing his father at the Battle of Tinchebray. The young man had incited two Norman rebellions and was a constant thorn in Henry's side. He had also married Sibylla of Anjou, the sister of William Adeline's betrothed. Henry had actually successfully bribed the Pope to annul the marriage on the grounds of consanguinity through their shared great-great-great-great-grandparents. Henry's hypocrisy truly knew no bounds, as we've discussed earlier. Henry's decision to pass over his nephew could be described as spiteful. He still had Cleto's father locked away in comfortable confinement. But in Henry's defense, naming a man you've been fighting against for more than a decade as your heir is not a good look. He would have likely needed to release his brother, risking another rebellion. And he had done so much to delegitimize Cleto and Curtos. In the end, the decision likely would have come to nothing. Cleto died of a gangrenous infection in July of 1128. Robert of Gloucester is our next subject after Matilda and we'll get fuller treatment there. While the son of the king, he was illegitimate. 
The Anglo-Saxon subjects were unlikely to ever accept this, and a new uprising would not be welcome to the Norman ruling class. The church likely would not have supported him being named. Finally, in our male options, it is 1126 after all, was Theobald II, Count of Champagne. Theobald was the second son of Henry's sister, Adela of Normandy, and Stephen II, Count of Blois. Theobald had helped his mother rule Blois as regent when his father was away on crusade, and by all accounts was thoughtful and skilled. He was, however, not in Henry's court due to running his own counties, and therefore was not likely to be named. He may have made a good king, though. He was known as the Great in his own lands. Of note, his older brother William was still living at this time, but had been passed over both with regards to their father's lands and with England or Normandy. William was not considered worthy enough by their mother for either of these roles. He was married off to an eligible countess in an easy-to-manage area and allowed to live out his life happily. Doesn't that sound great? (laughs) I do think history would be much better if more parents could choose their child best suited for the role and make sure their other children were useful in other ways. Theobald and William's younger brother, Stephen, does not even appear to have been considered. While a member of Henry's court, he was a third son, descended from a female line. As most of you know, this would not stop Stephen. But I want to plant a seed to look at in the analysis portion. Stephen was a respected fighter and leader of his men. Loyal, chivalrous, kind, possessing qualities that made his men loyal to him. To say he would have been a great general was an understatement. He probably wouldn't have fled battle. But he lacked that iron will that the great Norman kings had. I would like to revisit and assess him a bit more later. There was one more younger brother, Henry, the Bishop of Winchester, who will be instrumental in everything that happens after 1135. Henry's final decision on who would succeed him seems obvious in our time. There are currently three female heir apparents, Elizabeth of Belgium, Katharina Amalia of the Netherlands, and Victoria of Sweden. Victoria's own heir is her daughter, Laws have been changed in a lot of Europe to give women and men equality in this area. But in 1127, this was not done. Women could rule on behalf of their sons, who would then assume the throne on their majority, or they could give their husband ruling responsibility. Henry, though, was selecting his childless, widowed daughter as his heir. Despite his iron wheel, it is without a doubt that he had discussed this decision with his closest advisors. His son, Robert, would have known, and his brother-in-law, King David of Scotland, would have supported him for this to have gotten past the thinking stage. The importance of a king's role as a leader of his armies at this time cannot be understated. He was expected to organize his men, march out with them, and fight if needed. William of Normandy became king of England on the battlefield. Harold Godwinson could easily have won if his men had remained in formation a formation they broke upon hearing the false news that William was dead. Kings, especially Henry, sorted out taxes and finances, gave land to barons for their support, helped arrange the marriages of his leading nobles, often putting his illegitimate children to use in those. But at the end of the day, he was a military leader. By choosing his daughter, he was almost reframing the entire role. Quite a progressive move from a conservative king. Empress Matilda had much that would recommend her. In a superstitious time, she fulfills a supposed deathbed prophecy from Edward the Confessor. He shared a dream he had regarding the cutting of a green tree to be grafted 
on to another and would, without any assistance, become again united to its stem, bud out with flowers, and stretch forth its fruits as before. Henry I is reported by William of Malmesbury to support this prophecy, seeing his children as the fruit of this grafted stock. She was well-educated and practiced in the art of ruling from her time in Germany and Italy. She had spent most of her life watching her father and late husband rule. Her uncle David was king of Scotland and one of her greatest supporters. He had spent a great deal of his youth living in her parents' households, and they would have spent time together before she was sent to Germany. She would have had her pick of the best military minds of her day. Her brothers, Robert of Gloucester, who was already proven, and Reginald Dunstville, who was rising quickly, plus Brian Fitzcount of Wallingford, were all ready to support her. On the 1st of January, 1127, King Henry ordered, yes, ordered, his churchmen and barons to swear allegiance to Matilda. She was to be his heir, saving any legitimate sons from his second marriage. As was tradition, the members of high ecclesiastic office swore first, the archbishop and bishops. Next was the only other monarch in the room, King David of Scotland. It was an oath he would take seriously. As many listeners may know, a small argument broke out as to who would swear next, Robert of Gloucester or Stephen of Blois. Matilda's brother felt it was his right to go next as the king's son. Stephen argued that as the oldest present legitimate grandchild of the conqueror, it was his. Stephen won the argument and was the first of the barons to swear. I love imagining how happy Matilda would have been in this moment. She was being recognized as her father's heir in her own right. She wasn't married and had no children. It was all about her. Sadly, it appears that Henry may have seen things differently. A woman can transmit her bloodline and heredity to the next generation, but her husband would usually rule in her name until their son was of age. Henry's barons were in fact swearing only to her, but since not having children wasn't an option when you're the only heir to a kingdom, Henry needed to get his daughter married soon. This would change things for Matilda, of course, but would also cause his barons and churchmen some pause. Speaking of pause, I will be pausing here for a week. Matilda's story is not a short one, and I will need to divide it into a few parts. Next week, I will go over everything that happens up to Matilda being announced as the Lady of the English. Finally, I will cover the rest of the anarchy, Matilda's support for her son, and then finally my analysis of her life. Please make sure to get your end of the mini-series questions into me as soon as possible. I really look forward to putting together an end-of-series question and answer for you all. Thank you for listening to PAST. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PASTPOD. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.